Okay, I'm going to try to dive back into personhood and uh, I suppose I'll have to retread some of the discussion I had in the last one. The last one was singularly unsatisfying, so... Um, Difficult area, partially, I think, because in philosophy class, as I recall, we tended to skirt through these things. They were kind of connections that we assumed rather than talked about. And so when you try to sort of look directly at it, uh, it's you're on new ground. <laughs> you have to kind of, okay... Uh, how do I do this? There's a few sources that I can rely on. Isaiah Berlin had some good commentary on the um, the move in the Enlightenment period from um, a kind of metaphysical structure in Christianity or Judeo-Christian religion. Uh, I mean, look, most of the ink and most of the uh, emotional and intellectual energy in the Enlightenment was trying to say, okay, here we've got these new uh, figures as exemplars like Galileo and Newton um, and Kepler and Copernicus and so on. And so, and they were not scholastics in the sense of the later middle ages where the idea they was that they were reasoning from basically Aristotle's philosophy married to uh you know the Christianity and so the scholasticism was actually a very intellectual movement but it had as its tenets a uh commitment to an ancient a classical uh way of looking at the world in Arist in Aristotle, and um, you know a few people, a few intellectuals in the church, I mean, notably Aquinas, <laughs> um, who made sense of the essentially the biblical text um, in terms of cla- you know the classic physics of Aristotle and so on, and and so. A, just really a lot of what was going on with Diderot and Condorcet and the, the main uh, figures of the Enlightenment as we, as we, you know, as we now think about the Enlightenment um, uh, was just an outright rejection of that. Like, okay, we've got this new idea. We don't need this Aristotle's idea of purpose in the, in the universe can be replaced by mechanics Galileo famously showed that a rock does not seek the ground. It falls, uh, you know, at a rate that can be, that's actually describable by mathematics. And so now we've got to replace our old heroes with new heroes. And we've got, we need a new uh, worldview to go along with our new heroes. And so I think like most of what was going on with the, the philosophs, right, and, you know, uh, Rousseau and so many others, of course, Kant and Hume and so on as it rolled along. But most of what was going on 
most of what was going on was just like, okay, let's re let's rewrite what we mean by reality and get rid of that old stuff. Why do we want to get rid of the old stuff? For the first reason that our, our new and best thinking about natural philosophy, which later became science, uh, contradicts the physics of Aristotle. So we don't have that as authority. We don't believe that's authoritative anymore. And secondly, we kind of don't want the church telling us what to do anymore, particularly since they apparently got it really wrong with respect to uh, physics, right? So, so if we're going to get rid of the church, then let's, you know, part of that idea would be like, we've got to reject this idea of God. Now, there were some other strands that were making this also inevitable. One was colonialism. So um, at this point, the major European empires had all made major expeditions and voyages into parts of the world unknown, previously unknown, and um, discovered new peoples, new cultures, and new gods. And so suddenly this idea that, you know, we have this, we have this uh, history of, that's purely a Christian history with purely a Christian God, you know, suddenly that just didn't make sense. Now, people were aware in varying degrees of, of Islam by the, uh, you know, certainly by the Enlightenment. I mean, Islam was what, 7th century AD. Uh, and, you know, a lot, you know, big, there were centuries in the Middle Ages where the idea was just to, for the king to get together everybody and send them off to go fight the infidels. And by the way, make sure you come back with lots of spices and other things we need. Um, but so people were, you know, generally aware of that there were, that in fact, planet Earth had more than one religion, but that religion was just usually dismissed as that those were the, the, all the infidels. And Christianity was a true religion. And then it turns out there's all kinds of religions, right? Like there, when you get to the new world, there are, there are entire cultures with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of people who have no inkling of the Bible whatsoever. So whereas before you could say that Muslims or the Islamic faith generally was just a, in a erroneous uh, rendition of the same script, the biblical script. Now you've got people in the new world who've just never even heard of the Bible, just had, have been living in, an, in another universe that had nothing to do with the, the, those ancient texts, right? Um, and so that was also a big motivation that uh, what the, you know, when um, the French, English, and Spanish, and Portuguese expeditions came back, talking about new religions and new people, the, the idea suddenly that we were living in this well-charted and understood universe just stopped making a lot of sense. And so th there were many, many motivations uh, for, for the Enlightenment intellectuals to redraw the map, so to speak. Um, so, but there was a curious problem, the most obvious Okay, so when you've got an enemy that's religion, that's God, right? The most obvious way to get rid of God is just to say, well, that's a fiction, right? Like, well, oh yeah, by the way, uh, God doesn't exist. There is no God, 
Like that just is, that was something that somebody had dreamt up a few thousand years ago. It just doesn't matter anymore because we just, there is no God. And I think most people are kind of, that most people, to a lot of people today, that just makes a lot of sense. And so the Enlightenment Project makes a lot of sense to people because, well, we, got, we should get rid of these old, uh, may, you know, arguably no longer useful ideas. So let's just, let's say, how do you get rid of the Christian religion? Well, here's one way. There is no Christian God. It's a fiction. <laughs> that will do quite a bit towards, you know, getting to sweeping it, sweeping it away, right? Uh, and so, but then, and that was generally the tack that the Enlightenment intellectuals took. I mean, they weren't all atheists, by the way. I don't think Turgot was an atheist, but... Uh, by and large, they were profoundly skeptical of received or revealed authority, as the church would put it. And they, they wanted authority, uh, the authority now to be based on what they called human reason. Now, here's one problem that I think we didn't learn very well when we were all, we were all, we all really got the lesson about how we, you know, about uh, you know, Kant's famous maxim to think for yourself. That's the, the model of the Enlightenment, right? Have the courage to think for yourself. Well, we, got, we all got that. I think that, that came through loud and clear. But what we didn't get was what a mess it was to say, okay, well, what's the universe we're living in then? Uh, and I think, by and large, atheists today and, or just secular people today, to the extent that they think about this at all, they kind of assumed there were easy answers there. And it's not, it's, there weren't actually. And so you see a lot of, of hand-wringing over how do we ground the idea, the biblical idea of progress. So the biblical idea of progress is complicated, but basically it involves an initial failure of humanity. This is the state of nature. <laughs> you, you'll notice the, the connections between all these uh, <laughs> For those Western historians and philosophy students, you'll notice all these connections. Well, that's not coincidence. But there was this initial uh, state of, uh, of, of uh, bliss, which was the Garden right, of Eden. And then there was some original sin. And then now we have this world where we've got to put the pieces back together where they used to be together. And so you have um, the device of the you know, the, the original Eden, so to speak, really kind of like that's really, that was Rousseau. Of course, Rousseau reanimated or revivified that to make his point about the noble savages. Um, but, you know, somebody like Thomas Hobbes would say, well, actually, that original state was a war of all against all. But the point is, is that it was really, really different than the world we're living in now. And so now we're in, there's, we're on this, what we're, uh, now history has a kind of arrow because we're, we've moved away from that and so we're moving towards something. Now, notice how weird that is. Before Christianity, both Aristotle and Plato thought that history was largely cyclical and that governments were inherently unstable. There were good governments and bad governments and good types of governments and, good and bad types of governments, but government in general was inherently unstable and that, you know, history roughly was cyclical, which that doesn't make any sense to us anymore. I mean, if you, the more you think about that, the more you will see the, the weirdness in our 
contemporary view and the view of the uh, of the ancients. Uh, it's just it's just an idea that's just completely alien to us. If it doesn't seem alien, just think about actually believing we're going around in a circle that is cyclical. Um, there's some other weird ideas that are more tangential, but maybe bring them up. Um, also, the certainly the pre-Socratics, and probably also by Plato's time, um, they they also viewed time as as we we view time as uh, effectively a river. That so we're on a boat and we're floating down through time, moving forward through time, right? We we that's how we see time as being a flow that we're on. They saw time as something that was coming at you. <laughs> so uh, when something something would come at you, when it was up in front of you, that was, uh, I guess that would be the past. When it got to you, that would be the present, and when it went by you, that would be the future. And so the reason we couldn't see the future, but we could see the past, is because time went by you and we're looking at it coming at us. So we can't see the future because we'd have to turn around somehow. (laughs) So like, that's very strange. Think about that for a while and you'll see how that the ancient mind was quite a bit different in some, you know, really fundamental ways. Um, so, uh, but returning back to history, the idea that history was a progress towards a point really came out of the it really came out of Christianity. Uh, we certainly don't get it from the from the um, any of the great uh, Asian religions, right? So it's really it's really a Western concept. It, it's it's interesting, by the way, if you if you want to um, if you want to sort of bother your secular and atheist friends, you can point out that their view of history is is almost certainly a product of our religious past, <laughs> quite quite obviously, um, and so. Although not necessarily, right? We could have independently, but the point is, is we did not independently. We actually inherited that from the Judeo-Christian sources. Um, but, so, but the idea of progress was in Christianity is, was, has gone through many stages as well. So in one, on the one hand, we, every, the original, the fall is a, is a central concept. But then the early church thought that there was going to be a day of reckoning that was coming quite quickly. And so the, the need for moral progress was actually, it was to, re, the, the idea of repenting was simply that there's no need for, we don't have a long wait before the return of the Godhead of Jesus. And so the idea that we should build this heaven on earth doesn't really make sense. What you should do is repent and get ready because Jesus is returning soon. Well, so as the, Years and then decades and then centuries went by. We needed the, the church needed some new idea. It's like we there, so the idea that well okay, we're going to um, uh, he's coming, but he's coming a lot later. And our job now and the job of the believers is now to put, to um, construct the best possible world by being uh, const- having Christian virtues by exhibiting and you know Christian virtue. And so now we have this idea of moral progress. Well, we need the moral progress because Jesus is not available for a while. He's not coming back for a while, so we have to do something. Uh, so we, we're, that's what we're doing. And then 
um, there were a couple of strands of this, like the millenarians and the different strands. One was, you know, at the end of the millennia, uh, that's when Jesus was coming back. And then that was going to be the great gnashing of teeth. And it was going to be this really terrible thing. And then only the chosen were going to go. And that has gone through several iterations um, where some people think that, well, we don't really need this, you know, hellfire type of thing to get ushered in first. Uh, we're actually just heading towards not a utopia on earth that would be sacrilegious, actually, but we're just moving towards that re reconnection with Jesus, however that happens, with or without, you know, Satan and all the fire and locusts and burning everything. And I'm not trying to be flippant, and I'm not a, I'm not a church, I'm not a, a theologian, so, but, you know, this is roughly, these are roughly the strands that are important. Um, and so, but, but we, so what we, we don't, by the Enlightenment, uh, everybody had the idea of progress, and everybody wanted to get rid of the rest of it. So how do you do that? And it was actually a very difficult problem. Um, so Rousseau had the idea of, well, nature with a capital N. And so whereas we had this idea of God and we had this kind of good story to tell, uh, we don't have that story anymore. So what we'll do is we'll say, well, nature uh, is the unifying force whereby we can have a touchstone and say, like, we know we're making moral progress because we're in conformity with the dictates of nature or we're not, right? So as the some of the Enlightenment theorists recognized, but they were, I think, by and large, fairly ignorant of this tension. Certainly it came out by the time Isaiah Berlin was doing his deep dive into the Enlightenment um, in, the, in the 20th century. It's certainly he was well aware of it. He spent, he spent many, many pages explaining this tension. And I, but I think r roughly the, the, the actual Enlightenment figures were pretty, pretty ignorant of it. Uh, if they saw it, they saw it dimly. But the, the idea is, is that their view of the human being was mostly a machine. And their view of nature had to do double duty as something like replacing religion and so responsible for goodness and whole, you know, um, virtue and some sort of holistic, you know, hap happiness that we, we, that we can, you know, we can kind of ground that in this idea of nature, capital N. And it was also, by the way, clockwork or a, or a, a perfectly describable and understandable world uh, in light of, you know, through the lens of Newtonian mechanics. And so it had to be a perfectly deterministic clockwork universe that also somehow carried moral goodness, a standard of moral goodness in it. So you had sort of small and nature, which was mechanistic and um, thorough, you know, uh, you know, completely describable by the new mechanics, the new, the new physics. And then you had big end nature, which was something like happy fun ball nature, which was like how we knew we were making moral progress, how we grounded our intuitions about right and wrong and everything else. We didn't have, you know, no justification came now from God. So nature had to also play that double role. And I think that's a lot, you know, frankly, that's a lot to put on nature. If nature's a machine, it doesn't really have much to say about moral goodness. 
And if it's not a machine, then we haven't really replaced the ancient way of looking at the world with the new physics, right? And so there's a big, big tension right in the middle of that. And um, this is something that by the time the Romantics came along, uh, they, of course, rejected the mechanistic interpretation of nature and said, yeah, it's the big end. Nature really is the thing. And the Enlightenment people uh, were never able really to capture what's, what's good and true about, about the world. So what do you do with progress now? Well, progress is going to have to be something like um, the accumulation of knowledge, right? But we've got one big, big problem with, uh, remember, we're trying to hang on to this idea of progress. But there's a big problem with saying progress is the accumulation of knowledge, right? Because, well, you know, that, you know, uh, Goethe's Faust accumulated much knowledge, but was effectively did, had done a deal with the devil. And so the, con, the moral concepts that we need to ground a good society are not in general going to be reachable or, you know, analyzable uh, unless we explicitly invoke some kind of moral principle, something, right? Um, we're not going to be able to get that from the clockwork universe. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, you could say, well... And many people have said, you could say, well, look, there is nothing really like moral progress. What we mean by moral progress is just technology gets more powerful and complicated and people basically muddle through. We'll, we, you know, the idea that somehow we're actually making moral progress is actually just a, a big fiction. And without religion, we really don't have any machinery at our disposal to get that off the ground. So if you say like, you know, if you look at some a contemporary thinker like Steven Pinker, who says, you know, the better angels of our nature, and he, and he adduces all this, uh, you know, these statistics that show how we're getting better and so on. It's a fairly dubious enterprise if you don't have a metaphysical backdrop against it. Like, why should things get better? Uh, you know, we can count up the number of people who have died and so on. And, you know, I, you know, we can say, somebody can say, yeah, well, we don't, we generally don't have polio anymore. And somebody else can say, well, yeah, but we created a few diseases from tech. And so we added to our misery there and, and, um, you know, okay, well, we've, you know, life's, you know, the, your life expectancy is almost doubled, has doubled effectively since the Enlightenment Okay, right, but also we managed to kill, you know, we, warfare has never been more deadly, right? I mean, it, and, and this concept that somehow this stuff is all going away is just the, it's just that, that, that really strong belief in progress. <laughs> but, you know, Pinker notwithstanding, we don't really have, it's very difficult to see how we've got that view of progress. We want it. Because that's like having our cake and eating it too. Well, I mean, that's not why we want it. That's, you know, why we want it is because we want, we, because once we have our cake, we also want to eat it. Yeah, I guess that is true. Yeah, that's why we want it. Yeah, well, I don't, I want to get rid of God, but I don't want to start. And of course, you know, look, we can get into this, this whole intellectual tradition that came out of the continent 
Um, and you know, like I, I, you know, to a large degree, there were a few, there were a few Russian writers. I mean, the most obvious was Dostoevsky, but you know, if you look at Nietzsche and the Christian thinkers like Kierkegaard and so on, they were all pointing out, look, none of this makes any sense. Like there's this notion of progress is hanging on nothing that Nietzsche's whole point. Now Nietzsche, of course, of course was an atheist, but his whole point was, look, you didn't do your math. You didn't do your thinking. The Enlightenment didn't do its thinking. We're just trying to get this idea of progress. Now, if you go, and we don't have it. We don't have the, the conceptual framework anymore to get that notion of, of progress. And um, if you go to someone, certainly if you go somewhere, like to a, a real contemporary thinker like Harris, who tries to grind it in this, this kind of moral landscape, well, it's a little dubious, right? Like, well, I, certainly we can all agree that, uh, you know, we don't want, you know, women to be wearing burqas and so on. And that was his way of dispensing with, uh, you know, a, a certain religious, you know, practices that he and many others find abhorrent. But, you know, the obvious response is as like, certainly we can't all agree that we don't want those. Who is this we? Do you mean you and, you know, other like-minded secularists? It's certainly not the millions of people who wear burqas and, you know, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's very, it's a, this idea of progress is, has really been difficult ever since we dislodged it from the original Judeo-Christian story, right? Um, and so, you know, my interest in the book is I am very, very obsessed with this idea of progress. Why? Uh, in my world, artificial intelligence enthusiasts tend to be like Bible-thumping Christians without the Bible when it comes to progress. And so you see this very, very strong idea, this really religiously rooted idea that, you know, it, technology, advanced technology, artificial intelligence is linearly progressing and that it's either going to lead to the gnashing of teeth and so on, which was the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the horror story that the, the early church thought, you know, we, it was the, the coming of Christ was going to be occasioned first by this terrible that would be like the, now that would be like the Terminator rendition of everything. So, you know, before humankind can really get to the promised land, we have to defeat the impossible juggernaut technology, the Terminators, right? Or, you know, in this Kurzweil line, we're bringing back this heaven on earth and so on. So you've got, so like the, the idea of progress is really, really rooted in almost all secular technology thinking today, Right. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the ways I think it's, I mean, one of the ways I think it's dangerous to have this unexamined, well, the unexamined life is not worth living, isn't that what Socrates, but one of the reasons I think it's dangerous to have this unexamined idea of progress, uh, is, uh, <laughs> we, we are not able to solve certain problems when we don't understand, like, where do these eyes, where do these ideas come from? And what, where does the, the uh, progress claim come from? Now, easy answer, technology gets more powerful in some fairly straightforward sense. Hard answer, where are we getting with it? 
right? Uh, and and so here's the here's the generally speaking, I think here's the problem: very linear concepts of progress tend to be occasioned by anemic conceptions of personhood. That is the reason why I'm always, for those of you who know me out there, that is the reason why I'm always thinking about this idea because in, almost in lockstep you see the, the cheerleaders for progress tend to have very simplistic views of human, the human person. In some sense, the human person at the limit just becomes a stand-in for the theory of progress, right? It kind of doesn't, right? And so, um, so the very same person who is, has, is committed to an anemic and denuded sense of the human person and, the po- and a sense of the possibilities for the human person, that very same person can have this really, really strong, robust faith in human progress. But human progress for whom? Well, you know, for everyone, for all those little personhoods out there that don't matter, right? And so, um, so now, how do you, right, so, so how do you get, so let's, I'll, I'll cover the, I'm almost done with my time. Let me cover the, the anemic part here. All right. So, oh, this is tiring. <laughs> Sorry. My apologies to the listener. It is tiring, actually. Um, let's go back to 1860 or 1870 when Dostoevsky famously said in Notes from Underground, you know, if you, if you, uh, if, if our science, if our mechanistic science right? Remember the clockwork universe? If that version of science becomes so strong that it could actually predict the next move you're going to make or the next words you're going to say so that we had completely, you know, with, with, with using the tools of science, we had, we had solved every problem, including the mystery of ourselves, free will and so on. The person, he has this famous phrase where he says like, you know, if we created a crystal palace of reason, which is a reference to the World Fair, 1850 or something, there was this World's Fair and they had this big crystal palace of all, and, and they called it the crystal palace of reason and all these new scientific discoveries and technological discoveries were in the, the palace to go see. We would, the person would break the crystal palace of reason just to assert his or her own will which is to say that the idea of personhood cannot be subsumed or exhausted uh, by the concepts of a mechanistic universe. That, that, goes, that's, that worldview itself actually can't really cover what we mean by the person. I think Dostoevsky said that well, and it was a trenchant point. It's one that I've certainly... It's, it's, been, a, it's been a point that for me has formed one of the the major tenets of how I think about things, right? Is that that, that, that actually is true. Um, why? And here again is this linear, simple way of thinking about it. Well, because I don't like the mechanistic universe because I want God and so on. It's like, no, no. Like that's not, I'm not particularly religious. I'm certainly not religious in any sort of historical, literal sense like that. Um, and I never have been. 
I never have been like that. Like going into church for me has always been somewhat of a chore, frankly. So that's not where I'm coming from. It's that, gee, I don't want to live with an unexamined and uh, too weak to explain anything concept that I nonetheless demand must be true, <laughs> right? Like, well, yeah, yeah, that's the view. And, you know, well, but it doesn't do enough work for us in certain areas, as Dostoevsky well pointed out. So what's wrong with the concept? Is there something wrong with our concept of the person? Should we shrink the person? Well, there's a little clue for what I'm worried about. That's one way to get rid of the tension is to shrink the person. The other one is to re-examine the mechanistic universe, right? Uh, I, would, I would prefer to go that latter route, clearly. Um, but so if you see sort of how the human person got denuded, there's a few interesting uh, uh, marks along the way. And uh, one of them, one clue is increasingly thinkers started to notice that if I'm going to make a claim about the smallness of personhood or conversely the largeness of my scientific worldview and its power, which is to say like I can create a science that can cure all diseases, I can create a science that can create the ultimate society, I can create a science that can determine, that can actually give me a readout of what, in this Laplacian sense, a readout of what you're going to do and what you're going to say before you say it, because that's how powerful my tools of science are. I'm never in, I'm never at the end of that microscope that's get, that the examining end of it, right? I'm not the thing in the Petri dish. I'm the thing looking through the microscope at you. And so you see now when Foucault talked about science as being, I mean, <laughs> as being a, a master stroke of, of power and manipulation, you can see why. So you can, by, by the 1980s, you have somebody like Alasdair McIntyre who wrote famously in After Virtue. Uh, he was a political philosopher and a, and a moral philosopher. But he wrote famously the, that the Marxian who sees uh, that, all, that everything is determined, of course, can't, doesn't, or the, you know, he was a Marxian or a physicalist, of course, doesn't, can't include themselves. Because it's just not, it's no, <laughs> that's not the, the emotional import of the statement gets, gets, uh, uh, gets, gets blown to bits. The idea is that you all, all right, not me, not the scientist, the person in the lab coat is outside the, the is outside of the of the of that prescription is the point. Or right. Okay, so that's one that's one piece of evidence that there's something wrong with that worldview. Because every time I try to talk about it in this kind of powerful way, I've got to get myself out of it in order to make the statement. In order for the statement to even have any emotional appeal, right? Like, who wants to make a statement when I'm in it so I don't even know what I'm talking about, right? No, 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 no. It can't work that way. Like, it, it, it's got to be like, I possess this power, these tools, right? And all the other, and the masses, as it were, are going to benefit from them. Either we'll nudge them or we'll cure them or we'll, you know, we'll figure out, we'll, we'll solve crime by... Right, and so this is the great dream of kind of, you know, I hate to put it this way, but secular 
people who are disguising religious impulses, <laughs> right? Uh, this is the great dream. But as many have pointed out, it's, there's a problem with your view uh, because you, you too, sir, and you too, ma'am, are thereby determined. So uh, another couple pieces of, uh, ro- you know, along the roadway here, a few other markers. Um, I'd say around the 1950s, in searching for a new model of the mind, we had roughly the intelligentsia, at least in the Western world, had roughly arrived at the computational theory of mind, which is just something like, look, whatever you think your mind is doing, you know, when you're, when you're thinking, it's pretty much what a computer does. It's just a computer made of meat, and it's just a lot more powerful than the ones we have today. But you know, pretty much what your mind is doing is what a computer does, and, and that's how that works. And, so that, and thus arose the computational theory of mind. Now, why is that important? Well, you, if you have these, we notice how at, at the point at the, in history, when Dostoevsky was talking about free will and determinism and these big concepts, do you have a soul? You know, are you a machine? Are you not a machine? Do you have free will and so on? At at the in the nineteenth century, you had the, these. At that point, you had these really big discussion points about the personhood. By the time you get to the nineteen fifties, yeah, we're just pretty much like computers. We're, we're actually just glorified pieces of technology. So you see how we're starting to solve the tension inherent in the Enlightenment turn, right? by simply shrinking the idea of the person, him or herself, right? And so now we've got it to the point where, oh yeah, CTM is true, we're basically just machines. Okay, that's really handy, and and here's why that's so relevant today, because if you presuppose or assume CTM, computational theory of mind, then you put on a level playing field in the same kind of conceptual space, you put the mind of the person and the calculating prowess of the machine on the same playing field. So now it makes a lot of sense to say, well, we're just not as smart as computers, Uh, right? I mean, look, we already agreed we're the same sort of thing. And then when when we look at a computer playing chess and we look at a person playing chess, it's pretty obvious who's gonna win out. And so I think when you get, when you get to that stage, you have, in 300 years or so, roughly, you've solved one of the biggest tensions in Western thinking by simply shrinking the person at the expense, in order to solve, right, the inherent tension of saying we are, all, we are, remember it started, my claim, my claim, here's my claim, call it A, my, my point here is we had big N nature, which had to take the place of the Judeo-Christian framework. And then we had little n nature, which is the machine stuff that is supposed to underwrite all of our uh, progress in science. And between big N and little n nature, we were supposed to be able to come up with a secular view that was also progressive, just as the Judeo-Christian was. And what I'm saying is, is there's only a few ways to pull that off. And the way that we chose was by making the human person small enough that it didn't matter. So if we come back now and say, well, you know, what about all, what about McIntyre's point? What about Dostoevsky's point? What about, you know, Nietzsche saying the death of God is a big problem. Don't you get it? 
we can say, yeah, yeah, no, not really, because people really aren't that much in the first place. And the human person isn't really something much to worry about. Now, this is wonderful for all the control freaks out there, because if you want to create the perfect society, you don't want extra helpings of personhood and freedom and so on. Then you end up with, you know, right-wing lunatics with AR-15s. Wouldn't it be better just to get rid of those so we could get people a little bit more on the, on the, you know, on the right, on the same path, on the right path. Um, Anyway, not to venture into politics. So that's kind of roughly what I'm thinking about personhood. Like this idea of personhood has been kind of systematically shrunk. Now, there was never a point when somebody did this. It's just what happens when you're living with this underlying tension, right? Um, in my next talk, I'll talk about other ways that we could look at this or could have looked, about, looked at this.